All right, we are in 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1, we'll be looking at verses 6 through 9, so I invite you to open your copy of God's Word to that section of it. If you don't have a Bible, there may be a blue Bible located underneath the seat around you. Grab it, it's there for you, and you can turn to page 1014, and that'll bring you to the right section this morning. I, uh, I get a kick out of paradoxical paradoxical statements or sayings, and uh, a paradoxical statement or saying is, uh, is basically something that appears, at least on the surface, to be a contradiction or maybe logically unacceptable. So as an example, a very classic one is jumbo shrimp, jumbo shrimp. So obviously those two words seem to contradict one another, but obviously it's just speaking of uh, a shrimp among the other shrimp, it's jumbo compared to the other smaller ones. You, you got me? Jumbo shrimp, or for instance, a bittersweet. We've used that terminology. They don't. They seem to contradict one another. But you can experience something that's bittersweet. Maybe um, that might be used in the context of of uh, you're you're challenging someone in a sporting event, and your friends are on the other team, and you you win, and so you have the sweetness of winning, but there's a certain bitterness because your friend lost lost the event, something of that nature. Uh, a love hate relationship. Right? That's a paradoxical statement. Love, hate, how do, how do both of those things exist at the same time? Uh, they can. <laughs> they can. Um, or like even things like this, like nobody goes to that restaurant because it's too crowded. Some of these you have to think about. Okay? Or uh, you shouldn't go into the water until you know how to swim. See, some of you, it's going to take a while. I get it, and that's all right. Uh, but they're paradoxical. How do you not go into the water and see how you have to go into the water to learn how to swim? So anyway, it's, but again, the statement is obviously don't go into the water until you know how to swim by yourself kind of idea. You with me? All right, I said all that to say this. The title this morning, which uh, I hope accurately represents the text, that's what I'm searching for when I'm trying to come up with a title. Uh, it's, a, it's a paradoxical statement. Okay, sorrowful, sorrowful, yet rejoicing. Sorrowful, yet rejoicing. Now, before we jump into the details of the text, let's, uh, let's think about that title for just a moment. Is that even possible? Sorrowful, yet rejoicing. Is, is, it, is it possible to be, at, at the same time, sad, or distressed, or heavy-hearted, and yet joyful and rejoicing? Is it possible to have joy deep down in your soul, in your inner man, and in your eyes, tears of sorrow? Is that possible? Well, my brothers and sisters, listen. Not only is that uh, possible, but I would say it's essential. It's essential in order to thrive in the Christian life. It is, I believe, of the utmost importance, beloved, that we are able to find and latch on to 
the joy that the Bible speaks of, even in the midst of very difficult and adverse circumstances. Why? Well, so that our circumstances, as difficult as they might be, don't bring us to utter despair or cause us to lose heart or to give up or to slip into a state of destructive depression or anxiety. I believe it's important that we can do this, rejoice while we're suffering, so that when we face adverse circumstances, we might not be torn apart. But instead, strengthened in our joy to press on in this life in faithful service to our God. Love, you ever experienced sorrow? I mean, it almost sounds like a dumb question to ask. Because I don't know how you can live in this world for any length of time without running into adverse circumstances or difficulties. And you might remember this. When I introduced the book of Peter to you, this first Peter, this letter, remember one of the major themes of this book is suffering. It's suffering. But I want you to notice that right out of the gate, before, before Peter dives completely into the matter of suffering, he wants to start off by talking about joy. Joy. One writer says, noticing that, he says, Peter wrote early on the subject of joy and the believer because his readers needed the reminder and the encouragement as they faced severe persecution. Persecution for their faith. Persecution for the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Beloved, you want to read the text? I hope so. Let's do that. Let's look at the text now, and then we're going to dive in. Sorrowful, yet rejoicing. And I'm, I'm really excited about this section of God. I'm excited every week, but uh, I'm very excited this week. So, verses 6 through 9 of chapter 1, 1 Peter, the Word of God says this, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So this morning, let's explore the passage together. Peter says in verse 6, and we spoke about this a little bit last week, he said, in this you rejoice, and you right remember what I said about what this is. 
the this they rejoice in, Peter's readers who are suffering, refers back to what is found in verses 3 through 5, which we covered last week. And if you weren't here, I want to strongly encourage you to to catch that sermon online. But what we found in verses 3 and 5 is the believer's hope. I called it the Christian's hope. That is, it is the Christian looking forward to their future inheritance in Christ with confident expectation. And uh, just by way of review here, I pointed out that this, this hope, and we drew this from the text, verses 3 through 5, it's a living hope, a superb hope, and a secure hope. And we covered all of that in detail last week, but just to remind you, it's living, it is undying, it is a hope, beloved, that will not fail. So many things in this life will fail us. So many of our hopes will. They'll be crushed. They'll die. But this one will not. It cannot be destroyed. It is a hope that is rooted in and secured by the resurrected living one, Jesus Christ. It is a superb hope. It is a hope of the highest quality. It doesn't get any better than this kind of hope. It is a hope that consists of an inheritance that is imperishable, we learned, right? Not subject to decay. It does not rot away. It is also undefiled. It is unstained by sin, unlike so many things in this world. It is pure. It is glorious. And Peter also says it's unfading. It's unfading. Our inheritance will forever retain its beauty, its splendor, its magnificence. And our hope is secure. Not only is our inheritance secure because it's kept in heaven for us who name Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, but the heirs are secured by the power of God through faith, that they might make it through this life into the next to receive their great inheritance that God has prepared for them. That was last week, okay? Now look back at verse 6. In this you rejoice, okay? What? Verses 3 through 5, which we talked about. That is their Christian hope. In this, your Christian hope, your living hope, your superb hope, your secure hope, the inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, in this you rejoice, though now, in the present, that's in the future, that's in your future if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. Though now, Christian, Now, in the present, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. All right, so let's talk about this. Now, it says we rejoice. We we know what we rejoice in. It's the Christian hope. But I just want to tell you that word translated rejoice, it means to jump for joy. To jump for joy. Uh, it, It means to exalt. Another a way to just define it. Exalt. 
And if you wonder what that means, it means to be extremely joyful about something. Okay? You ever jumped for joy for something? You ever had that experience? Uh, If you're a Christian, hopefully, you are jumping for joy. Maybe not literally, but in your heart, in your soul, you're jumping for joy in your great inheritance that you have in Christ. One commentator points out that that verb translated rejoice is in the present tense. What does that mean? It just indicates that this joy characterizes Peter's readers. They are rejoicers. They are rejoicing in their hope. It is who they are. And it exists even in the midst of the difficult trials that they were experiencing. Okay? Even in the midst of them, they are rejoicing. Now, the word translated grieved in our English Standard Version, this translation that we use here, it's translated other ways, but I like, I like the way, actually, the King James Version, that, that, the older King James Version that used to be the Bible of the land. It's translated heaviness. So verse 6 reads like this. I just think that communicates something. Though now for a season, if need be, so you're rejoicing, Though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness. Heaviness. You're sad. You have a heavy heart. You're rejoicing, and yet you have a heavy heart. Paradoxical. Paradoxical. Peter's readers were grieved, beloved, due to the the various trials they were enduring. And let me just... Let me make a comment here. We've, I've made this one before. It's okay to be grieved. It's okay to have a heavy heart. It's, it's okay to be sad. Remember when we uh, went through Romans 12, 15, maybe, and, and there, in that text, Apostle Paul says this to the church, rejoice with those who rejoice. yes. Weep with those who weep. Huh? Okay? So I I told you then, that implies that people weep, that people are sad, that people will have experiences that cause them to, to suffer and be grieved and have heavy hearts. And it doesn't say, tell them to snap out of it. You know? Why are you so sad? Don't you know you have heaven coming? No. It is okay to experience grief. It's natural, beloved. If you didn't, I would think there's something maybe wrong with you. If nothing made you sad, if nothing got you down, if you never had a heavy heart, how's that possible? So it's okay to weep. But what's unique here is while that's going on, while that state of your heart is being experienced at the same time, the very same people here in the text are rejoicing. They're rejoicing. They they continued 
even in the midst of their tough times, they continued to rejoice in their Christian hope. They, they continued to exult in their great inheritance that they had in Christ. And let me tell you something. Because of that, their heaviness, because that's such a great word, that's so descriptive, their heaviness did not crush them. Or render them defeated. Or turn them into miserable Christians. You know what I'm talking about? So, see, this is, this is such a necessary balance, beloved. Life is hard. Hello? Huh? Life is hard. This life, this life, this life is, is difficult. It is difficult. And so sadness will come. But for the Christian, they are not without hope. They are not without joy because of that hope. They, they can rejoice even in the midst of that stuff. Beloved, I've seen, I've seen Christians become miserable Christians. Why? Because they stopped rejoicing in their hope and the difficulties of their life owned them, ruled over them in a way that they need not to. Okay? Very dangerous place to be for a Christian. I mean, you can get to a place where you don't want to do anything anymore. Or maybe you don't really even want to serve the Lord anymore. I mean, what's it all worth anyway? I mean, life is so hard. It is, beloved. It is. But we have hope. And in that hope, we have great joy. The joy that enables us to jump for joy. Even with heavy hearts. It is that rejoicing that lightens our load, beloved. One writer says, though trials may cause temporary grief, they cannot diminish that deep, abiding joy which is rooted in one's living hope in Christ Jesus. Now, again, just notice, where is it rooted? Where is that abiding joy rooted? Yeah, in our in our hope in Christ Jesus and that living hope in Christ Jesus and, and all that awaits us because we are his and therefore co-heirs with the one who owns everything. Our joy cannot be, and unfortunately for many, that's exactly, this is exactly what it is. It's rooted not in their living hope in Christ, but in their present circumstances. Beloved, that's not a good place to root your hope and joy. Because present circumstances can be good, and then boom, like that, they're bad. Really bad sometimes. And so if, if that is the place you find your joy in no other place, you are laid flat. You are devastated. You are wiped out. Do you know how many people are on depression medication in our country? I don't know. 
but I've read it's higher than it's ever been. Not a good place to be, beloved. Peter says, by the way, in this you rejoice. So I'm going to tell you this. It's a fact. He's talking to, to the, his readers, right? It's a fact that, yes, indeed, it is in this that they rejoice. And we know that this is the living hope as it was described in verses 3 through 5. But it serves as a reminder, too. <laughs> right? Hello! Hey, guys, remember. It, so he doesn't say remember in this you rejoice. But in this you rejoice. He just That in this, this is what you rejoice in. So no matter what adversity we might face, we need to remain focused on our living hope. Beloved, and, and we need to encourage one another to that degree, to that end, to, to do that. Again, not flippantly, like, you know, oh, you're sad, you know, get over it. Rejoice in your, no, no. You're sad, so we weep with those who weep. But we also help them look back to their hope. We do both. We weep with them, and we direct them kindly, gently, back to their living hope. Because in that living hope, they will find survival as they face the darkest of days. Huh? Remember, I said, this is a, I said that this hope is exclusively Christian because it's for those who belong to Jesus Christ. Beloved, you love your... You love your neighbor, your lost neighbor, your, your lost coworker, your lost family member, you love them? They need this hope. Goodness, they need this hope. I told you before, I don't know what I would do with that. I, I don't know where I would be without this hope. Maybe a drunkard, I said that last week. Only God knows. You know, all, most of that stuff is just people trying to deal with the difficulties of life without Christ. And so they turn to what the world offers, which is always destructive. Drugs, alcohol, sex. You have this hope, beloved. Rejoice. But let me tell you this. There's also a perspective, and this is the part I'm really excited about. As I was looking through the text and studying it, There's a perspective that we need to have about our trials, a perspective that can greatly help us as we face trials or experience hardship in our lives. Beloved, we need a proper perspective concerning these things, a Christian perspective, a biblical one. So yes, we rejoice in our hope, even though we are facing various trials. But what about our trials? How are we to think about those? Okay? Well, I'm... I'm, I'm jazzed here to share this with you. So listen, verse 6, let's look back at it. He says, you've been grieved by various trials, right? Okay, trial, the English word trial. When you think about that, what do you think about? Trial, you might think of a courtroom, right? That's one def- definition of a trial. But it can be defined also as a, and, and that fits that, you'll, when you think about what a trial is, but it can be defined as a test or an experiment to determine the quality of something. Okay, so um, you might get a, a product and they give you a trial period with that product. What does that mean? You are to test the product 
during that time, examine it, use it, and determine if the product does what it says it's going to do. You with me? Or uh, sometimes people do a trial run or a test of the operation of a new system or a product. So they say, all right, we're going we're gonna, to, the machines are supposed to do this, so let's put them through a trial run to see if the machines actually can do what they're supposed to do, right? So it's a testing for the quality of something. Similarly, trial, the word, English word trial, can be defined as an instance of trouble or hardship, especially one that tests somebody's ability to endure. All right, so that's just our English definition of the word trial. And that makes sense because the Greek word that is translated trial means this, an examination or a process of testing for the purpose of displaying the nature or quality of the thing or person tested. That's what the Greek word means. That's why trial is a very appropriate English word uh, for that word. By the way, that very same word is used that we see in verse 6 here. That very same word is used in 1 Peter 4.12. And when we get there, you'll see there they translate the word test. Just test. Because both fit. Trial, test. Now in light of that, let's look back at verses 6 and 7. Of that understanding of the word trial. And then we'll keep looking at this. Verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while... If necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that, you see that word, so that? Or it's two words, okay? Keep, keep, no, keep your eye on that. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ, if you would leave that up there for a second, brother. All right, so that. The so that introduces a statement of purpose, okay? When you see so that, what follows is a statement of purpose, meaning that the so that and what follows is the divine purpose or God's purpose behind trials, okay? Behind trials. So what is that purpose? What is that purpose? Well, according to verse 7, it is so that the tested genuineness genuineness of your faith, and you can skip down because past the second hyphen, because that's just a, a parenthetical thought, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay? So stick with me here. You can drop it if you want now. First, tested genuineness, tested genuineness, so that, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, all right? That's, that word, tested genuineness, is actually one word in the Greek, in the original, uh, or our manuscripts that we have, it's just one word. And I want to show you how it's translated in other translations. So now, if you could pop that up. So in the New American Standard Bible, that word, instead of tested genuineness, it's so that the proof, proof of your faith, uh, the Holman Bible, these are all good translations, says, so that the genuineness of your faith, they, they just use the word genuineness, they dropped the word tested. But the NIV kind of puts them both together. 
It says, so that your faith may be proved genuine. So that your faith may be proved genuine, okay? Remember, what are we getting at? We're looking at what is the purpose, what is the divine purpose behind our trials? So that your faith may be proved genuine. All of them are attempting, all these translations, including the ESV, are attempting to translate the Greek word, which is best understood as something tested and proved to be genuine. Tested and proved to be genuine. Okay? So that's why the ESV, I think it's a good translation, captures that with saying tested genuineness. Tested genuineness. Genuineness. I can't have a hard time with that word. Tested genuineness. So now listen, beloved, what Peter, listen, this this is good. Because perspective is everything, I'm telling you. You have the right, you have a biblical perspective. It It will help you. It will help you so much. If you have one that is not biblical, you're going to get in trouble. You're going to get in trouble. So what Peter is saying that is that trials serve a purpose. That is, they come into the believer's life to prove the genuineness of their faith. To prove that it is authentic, that it is the real deal. You with me? Okay, now you may not understand how that works yet, and that's okay. Just I want you to be with me so far. They come into our life to prove these tests, these tests, these trials come into the believer's life in order to, so that, prove the genuineness, I'm not going to get it right, it's okay, of our faith. Now, let me take you back to Mark for a second. The Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 4, 3, 3. This is so awesome. This is so awesome. Listen, here we go. I'll read it quickly. Uh, beginning in chapter 4, I'm going to read through. This is the parable. It's best defined as the parable of the soils. It's a description of different kinds of soils that uh, the word of God or the gospel falls on, and then what happens as a result of the, the different types of soils. There's only one soil that produces salvation. The other soils, ultimately, they may appear to be saved or receive salvation, but they're not actually saved. Okay, I'll I'll just read it to you and that maybe will be helpful. So he says, he tells the parable, listen, verse three, behold, a sower went out to sow and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path and the birds came and devoured it. So he's just telling a story now. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. Right, so there's the story. That's not, you could get that, or you can uh, imagine it in your mind, right? Any gardeners? Uh, Yeah, okay, even if you've never gardened, I think you can picture it. You've seen it on TV maybe, right? So we get the idea of what this, what's going on here, and we see in our own gardens or lawns this taking place, probably. Now, they don't understand the parable, so Jesus explains it to them. Um, in verses 13 through 17, he said to them, his disciples, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? All right, I'll explain it to you. The sower sows the word, so it's the word of the gospel, good news of Jesus Christ, the glory of the kingdom of God. 
And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. So it's a path, okay? The soil, this, 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 the, the, the seed, which is the word, never, it's a path. You know how, like, we walk that path here in Ranch Cucamonga, Fontana, or whatever? It's hard. It, nothing gets, penetrates it. You get with me? So it lands, but it's just sitting there on the top. It never, it's not good soil. It's not soil ready and prepared for the word. Okay, so it doesn't receive the seed, and, and what happens? Birds come and take it away. Here he says, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Listen, then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately, what happens? They fall away. Why? Well, the soil wasn't good to begin with, so they might even appear on the surface to maybe be professing believers, but as soon as any trouble comes for their faith or into their life, that proves that they weren't because they were not rooted in Christ who gives the ability to withstand persecution and tribulation and trouble in this world and to persevere. Okay? And then he goes on in verse 20, but those that are the sown on the good soil, in contrast to these other soils, are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit, 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold, okay? Varying levels of, of uh, service unto God. So the genuine believer does not fall away, but perseveres and remains faithful to the Lord. Yeah? Okay, so, so let's put this all together. So listen, as I said before, what Peter is saying is that trials serve a purpose. That is, they come into the believer's life to prove the genuineness of their faith. But to whom are these trials intended to prove that? Think about this. This is so good. I'll get you excited. I'll get you there. I'll get you there. I'm hoping the Spirit actually gets you there because I have no power to do that. But listen, listen. To whom are these trials intended to prove the genuineness of faith? To God? Yeah, I don't think so. I don't think so. God's not like, I wonder if they're real. Like, were they sincere when they made that profession of faith? Are they really sick? That's ridiculous. I mean, in every way, that's ridiculous. Since God is the one who saves in the first place, since, since God creates the new life in that person, he knows very well who is his and who is not. He knows. Okay, so then why the proof? And who's it for? Yes, it's for Tony. <laughs> because Tony has doubts about a lot of you. He's expressed that to me. And uh, he wants some evidence. So trials and tribulations will be coming your way via Tony soon. Thank you, brother. But anyway, yeah, to me, to the, to the believer, to the believer. Beloved, you believe, right? You believe, right? You say you believe. And, and, and then we, and you make a profession of faith. You repent of your sins. You turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we tell you, if that was real, if that was, the, if that was genuine, if that was saving faith, you're saved, right? But how do you know that? How do you know that? 
Now, we've talked about that. There are other things that the Bible says that can help you determine whether you know that's the real deal, okay? So, for instance, we know in 1 John 2, 3, we've gone to it many times, we know that we know him if we basically obey him. And if we don't obey him, the Lord, then anybody who says he knows him or has a relationship with him, the same relationship, they're just lying, lying to people, lying to themselves, or both, okay? But, uh, but, but listen, nothing has the ability to really drive home the reality of your salvation like trials, like trials. Because, I mean, I, you could even have someone who maybe their obedience is just external obedience. Eventually, the truth will come out. They'll know that in their heart of hearts, they, they are not obeying the Lord, and then they should have no reason to believe that their faith is genuine. But here, trials come, and these trials come to, to not hurt the believer, but to prove to the believer that their faith is genuine because that kind of faith, saving faith, causes the believer to persevere, even in the midst of incredible persecution, suffering, and troubles that we'll face in this present life. You with me? In fact, let me, let me just say, um, well... Let me read a couple quotes to you, and then I'll say it. This One person says, this perspective on trouble, and it's, it's the right one, this perspective on trouble in your life actually produces triumphant joy since the experience validates Christians' faith. It validates it. It's like, how do I know? How do I know this is, how do I know this is solid? How do I know this is the real deal? Because, whoa, baby, I was hit with all of this. And I did not flee from the Lord. I did not run from the Lord, okay? But rather, and I did not, I was not crushed in it, but rather I came through it and in even greater love with my Lord. See, okay, let me read another one. God tests the believer's faith to reveal its genuineness and as I said this, he said, I said this as well. The trials are not intended to destroy one's faith, but confirm it beyond doubt. Confirm it beyond doubt. Listen, you don't know the true quality of something until it's put to the test. Yes or no? Huh? Right? And the Lord is so good, he gives us repeated reminders. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, Repeated tests to reconfirm to us the genuineness of our faith. And beloved, just a personal, personal example. Or I was just thinking about this. As I said, you go into this trial, you're experiencing this trial. It is in the midst of troubles and adverse circumstances that I have grown closest to the Lord. You know why that's true? Because I'm awesome? Nope. I am, I am not. Because I'm a special kind of Christian? Nope. Because I am the Lord's, and that is the Lord's work that he does in the midst of my trials. He, he brings me into a greater relationship. So I, not only do I persevere by his strength, not mine, but I come out of it in even better place spiritually, 
than I did when I went in it, reconfirming to me that I am his and he is mine. Now, think about this. Think about this. Remember, rejoice in this. What? Your hope. Beloved, my ability to rejoice in that hope is directly tied to how much confidence I have in the fact that I have that hope coming. See, that hope comes to the heirs, and the heirs are all those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. But if that faith is not genuine, if that faith is not real, I am no heir at all. Trial comes. And God sustains me and grows me. I come out of that knowing that I am his and I am an heir. And I triumph in joy. See the power there. So now I'm not saying, come on, baby, bring the trials. I'm not saying that. That would be ridiculous. Don't ask for trouble, beloved. Don't worry. God will bring it your way. You'll have it because you live in a fallen world. Don't worry. Don't ask for it. Don't ask for it. But don't be afraid of it. You need not be. God will make you better through it. He will ground you in your hope. He will solidify it. He'll pour concrete on it. Because he'll bring you through it triumphantly. That's, see that perspective? Wow. A lot of you are going through trials. You know, some of them I know, some of them I don't. Can't possibly know them all, but some of them I know. Hear this message. for you. It's for us. If you're not in one now, <laughs> give it time. Yeah. It's coming. It's coming. So now back to verse 6. Look at this again. Oh my goodness, this is so great. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, and then he, there's a pause here, okay? It's a it's a parenthesis. It's a parenthetical. He just stops to say something, okay? It breaks his thought here for a moment. Your, the genuineness of your faith, the tested genuineness of your faith, pause, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. I want to talk about that. That is so cool. Here, Peter contrasts and compares genuine faith, Christian faith, with genuine gold. Gold was and is a precious and highly valued metal, right? Huh? Yes or no? Still, yeah. For the history of mankind, gold. Very valuable. Continues to be. Now, there was a process for determining whether gold was genuine or not. If it was the real deal. Because has there ever been fake gold? Or gold that appears real, maybe it's just the surface of it is coated in gold. Maybe you've bought some of that and paid too much and realized it after the fact, right? Because it turns green or stuff like that. So that's one way. But there's, there is, like with anything of value, there are always people willing to fake it to try to rip you off, okay? So, back even before probably 1500 BC or earlier, they developed a way, because they were concerned about the authenticity of gold, the Egyptians developed a way. It's called fire assaying. Fire assaying. And I'm not going to, yeah, I'm not going to explain the whole process to you for sure, but I'll just, I'll boil it down because it's so awesome that he uses this, okay? 
as, as a comparison and a contrast to genuine saving faith, Christian faith, tested faith. So they would weigh the gold, okay, whatever, you have a piece, right? And you're like, is that real gold? All right, we'll find out. Is it genuine gold? So it has to, it has to be mostly gold, right? To be genuine gold, it can't just be something that looks like gold that's not gold or something that's just kind of the surface is gold, but the rest is not. That's not a genuine piece of gold, right? So they weigh it. Then what they do is they, through some processes, they put it into a fire inside of a, uh, uh, and, and the thing that holds it is uh, sometimes called a crucible. You ever heard that word? Using that way, a crucible. So it's a, a container that's going to hold this thing in very high heat. They put some stuff with it. They melt. They put fire to it. Here's what happens. The other metals that may be a part or things, elements that are a part of this rock that they weighed, they begin, it begins to melt. They melt away and they are, they are uh, absorbed into the crucible. Okay? What's left is gold, if there is any. They then take, now it's all done, they take that, what's left in the crucible, and then they weigh it. So you have the previous weight. So if this is real, if this is genuine, then I should be very close, because you're always going to have some other elements mixed in, but it should be very close to the original weight. You with me? But if there's nothing left, or it doesn't even compare, then that original piece was not genuine. So this is so cool, because that is exactly, we go through the fire of trials. We go through the fire of trials. And it is, it is like gold. It is designed to, to determine the authenticity of our faith. But listen, Peter says, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, he says, more precious of greater worth, the NIV says, than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. So he's saying, listen, genuine gold, that is gold that is tested by fire, we know, it's, we know it's the real deal. It's valuable, but it's going to perish. In contrast, genuine faith, your tested and proven faith, as he's speaking to those Christian readers, it is imperishable. Therefore, it is of much greater value. Genuine, tested, fire-proven it is of much greater value. Not only does it not perish, but it's a, it should be of much greater value to you, beloved. Have I got an authentic piece of gold? I don't care how big it is. I don't care how much it is. And I got over here my authentic, genuine faith. Which is more valuable? Which is more precious to me? And really, it's not that gold's not valuable. It is. That just highlights how valuable this is. It's even more valuable than that. And it certainly is, beloved. I hope you see it that way. Gold might buy you stuff here, but it don't buy anything over there. You know what I'm saying? The only thing that buys you anything there, and that's probably not even a good way to say it, buy. The only thing that delivers you all the, all the glories of heaven is genuine faith. No amount of gold. Genuine faith. All right. Let's look back real quick here. Oh, my goodness, there's, okay, wow. 
In this you rejoice, verse 6, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, now he picks back up the thought, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is the result. This is the outcome of genuine faith, of fire-tested proven faith. One translation says, It is genuine faith that will bring praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. One writer says it this way, True faith will ultimately come through all of life's troubles and trials and obtain eternal honor from God. That's true faith. That's genuine faith. Another writer says this, Sufferings function as the crucible for faith. They test the genuineness of faith, revealing whether or not faith is authentic. If faith proves to be real, the believer will receive praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ returns. The eschatological reward, that future reward, will be given to them because of the genuineness of their faith, which is proved by the sufferings they endure. Now, beloved, listen, some think that this praise and glory and honor is given to God by Christians, and there will be plenty of that, okay? But it's better to understand this here in this context as coming from God to the believer. God's commendation, commendation is the future reward of every genuine, authentic Christian. Well done, good and faithful servant, are the words we are looking to hear and we'll hear for all those who have genuine saving faith. And I love what, uh, what one writer says. He, he points out that the emphasis here is on the rewards believers receive. And yet, praise, glory, and honor, in a secondary sense, are, will also redound to God since he is the one that empowers believers to persevere. So it goes like this. In honoring that Christian, he is honored. In glorifying, he receives glory. And in praising, he is praised because he is the one that brought them through. He is the one that sustained them, strengthened them. He's the one that gave them the faith in the first place. So as he honors them in that, he receives glory and honor and praise right back to himself, which is where it belongs. It's unbelievable. God is unbelievable, and our salvation is just amazing. Then Peter says this, kind of closing here, in verse 8, he says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. And you could translate glory there as one uh, translation does, glorious joy or transcendent joy. And one writer commenting on that passage, verse 8, simply says this, Peter's main point in that verse is clear. Believers who suffer, believers, are not dashed to the ground by their troubles. They love Jesus Christ and rejoice in Him, even though they have never seen Him and, and do not see Him now. Their lives are characterized by a hope that fills the present with love and joy as they look to the future, right? And then finally in verse 9, it says, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That can be translated this way, and it's translated this way in the NIV, for you are receiving the goal or outcome, future, of your faith 
the salvation of your souls. And if, that's, if that is the right way to translate it, it may very well be, 4 looks back to verse 8. So verse 9 would be looking back to verse 8. And so as one writer says, if we understand it that way, Peter was explaining why believers are filled with love and joy for Jesus Christ. They have love and joy because of the prospect of future salvation. The joy believers experience is a taste of heaven in anticipation of the end. Beloved, as you face various trials, remember and focus on your living hope in Christ, okay? And maintain a proper perspective about your trials so that even in your sorrow, even in your sorrow, you'll be able to rejoice. Not only is this medicine, medicine that we need bad for our own souls, but it can provide, listen, it can provide an opportunity for giving the gospel to unbelievers around you. They're going to want to know. I just saw you go through some really bad stuff. And yet you are not crushed. And yet you keep talking about Jesus Christ in this thing that's coming and your future reward. Or tell me why. Why is it that you are able to have joy even in the midst of your sadness? Why? Oh, let me tell you. It's Jesus Christ. Let me tell you about him. Okay? For our own sake, for the sake of those around us, sorrowful yet rejoicing. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, I thank you for your word. And uh, I just pray it would, it would have its effect and do its work in us as your people. Father, I also pray for those that are here and have no relationship, no saving relationship, no authentic faith, no saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Father, we're working their hearts now. They are in a place, a really bad place. Not only are they under your wrath, Father, for they have not fleed to the cross of Jesus Christ and there found rescue for their sin and their rebellion against you, but Father, what a miserable life that they have here on earth as well, for they have no hope, no real living hope, no biblical hope that inspiring hope, that hope that strengthens us and encourages us and motivates us and, Father, enables us to live even in a difficult world for you. And so, Father, I, I pray, I pray that they would, by your powerful hand, come to a place that they would see their need for the Savior. Because there's only one, and his name is Jesus Christ the Lord, the Son of God came unto this earth to die to save sinners. And Father, I pray that they would become one of those saved sinners even now, crying out to you even now in their heart, in their mind, for mercy and fleeing in their, with their hearts, repenting of their rebellion and sin and fleeing to the cross and to Jesus Christ and asking Him to save them. Father, I pray that even now. May your work be done for your honor and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.